Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, December 12th, 2021. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, gender reveal parties started in the late 2000s. Um, Expecting couples would invite friends over and have everyone suddenly learn together, including the couple, uh, the parents-to-be, what the gender of their upcoming bundle of joy might be. Now, some of the more popular methods for revealing a child's gender over the last couple decades have been balloons, right? Just pop them to see what color of confetti comes out so you'll know the gender. Or cake, uh, open it up and see what color icing is on the inside. Or uh, whether pink or blue surprises come rolling out of the inside of the cake. Uh, There's confetti cannons when uh, simple balloon or cake just won't do it. There's colored smoke, which takes your Instagram photos to the next level. There's the big box reveal, just open it up and see what color of items come flying or popping out. There's the paint on canvas method where uh, the couple each gets a can of paint. They have no idea what color it is. They open up the lid and throw it onto the canvas and then are pleasantly surprised at this artwork uh, that they have before them. Uh, And then, of course, the ever-popular piñata, whether there's pink or blue-colored candy and prizes inside. Now, if all of that sounds a bit tame, you can always kick things up a notch, like your uh, gator watermelon crunch gender reveal. That's right, where you drop a hollowed-out watermelon into the mouth of a live alligator, and when he crunches it, you see what color of goop comes squirting out. This is where I say, don't try this at home, kids. Not that you're going to find any gators in the Antelope Valley. Uh, But this family actually owned a gator farm, and so they did this. Or you could go skydiving, right? Just strap the husband onto an accomplished skydiver, take them both up into the air, then jump out of the plane because you really, really want to know what the gender of your child is going to be. And then the professional skydiver uh, releases a smoke trail, blue if it's a boy, purple if it's a girl. It was purple in this case. Um, Or maybe you're uh, a hip-hop dance crew member, and you decide to get the whole gang in on the action, and mom is there in the middle working it, waiting for the exciting conclusion when the pink confetti falls in the most dramatic moment of the song. Of course, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, you can Google gender reveal fails. There are countless stories of people uh, injuring themselves. Usually it's the dads that injure themselves. Surprise, surprise, right? There are even uh, accounts of people dying, which of course is tragic. But here's three that I thought I'd share with you that aren't too graphic. In Iowa... Rescue personnel were called when a couple purchased a gender reveal boom box filled with the highly combustible tannerite. They triggered it on their property via rifle outside the town limits, all perfectly legal. However, the explosion was so powerful that it caused a minor earthquake two miles away in the local town. Needless to say, people were not excited to find out it's a girl. Uh, In Texas, 
An airplane crashed after a gender reveal moment. This small single-engine plane had been carrying 350 gallons of pink water. And they were flying low in order to disperse the liquid over the party that had gathered for the gender reveal. But once the liquid was released, the plane slowed and went into what is known as an aerodynamic stall, and it caused the plane to crash. Fortunately, both the pilot and the lone passenger survived. Or we can go to the great state of Arizona, where a couple set up a target filled also with tannerite in the desert, and using a rifle to ignite it, not only revealed that they were having a baby boy, but started a wildfire in the nearby Colorado National Forest, which eventually burned 47,000 acres and garnered the man an $8 million fine. So, goodbye college fund, kid. Well, welcome to the third week in our Advent series entitled The First Christmas. And we're uh, marking this ancient four-week journey that Christians over the centuries have made as we pause in the midst of the busyness of our holiday schedules and seasons And we actually spend time actively waiting and spiritually preparing for the coming of Jesus. It's so important uh, to not just hurtle through this season towards December 25th at light speed. In fact, today in our series, we get a first century version of a gender reveal. In fact, we get two gender revealing episodes, to be exact, for the price of one. But they're not simply gender reveals, they're also pregnancy reveals. Two of the four Gospels tell the story of Christmas, Matthew and Luke. Now, during the series, we've discovered that each writer has a very different focus on Jesus' birth. For today's gender reveal stories, one focuses on Joseph, the other focuses on Mary. And each one is, indeed, quite different. So, we're going to take a look at both of them separately, beginning with Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. Now, Matthew is very clear from the start, as he has been all along in his gospel. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. In fact, he began his gospel in Matthew 1, verse 1, by saying uh, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the genealogy has laid the foundation for Matthew's premise that he is writing about Jesus, who is the Messiah. All in all, Matthew will use the term Messiah five times in the first two chapters in this infancy narrative. Now, why is the number five important? Well, if you remember from our first week in the series, Matthew is painting Jesus as the new Moses. Matthew uses five dreams, five scripture fulfillments in these first two chapters. He lists five women in the genealogy of Jesus, and his gospel is written in five parts, all to connect to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Matthew tells us that Joseph and Mary were engaged. This was a process that often took many, many months before the actual marriage uh, came together. We're also told that Mary is to be found with child. Now, we know this is something that God has worked out through the Holy Spirit, but evidently, Joseph does not. 
Now, Matthew describes Joseph as a righteous man. And the the traditional understanding of this passage follows along this line. The betrothal or engagement was the equivalent of marriage back in the ancient Near East. And so Joseph, when discovering Mary is pregnant, believes she is guilty of adultery because he knows that he is not the father. But instead of making a big scene and accusing her of unchastity in the public's eye, Joseph will opt out for a quiet divorce. And it is a divorce because once you're engaged, that's the equivalent of being married. And so he is going to dismiss her quietly. Marcus J. Borg and John Dominic Crossan in their book, The First Christmas, what the Gospels really teach about Jesus' birth, ask these very down-to-earth questions. Why does Matthew even raise the issue of adultery? Did Mary not tell Joseph what happened? Did Joseph not believe her? Why did Joseph presume adultery? How did he expect to solve it quietly within the publicity of an arranged small village marriage? Great questions when you start looking at the two stories. Now, Luke actually never mentions the issue of adultery between Mary and Joseph in his account of the birth narrative. In fact, there's nothing to indicate that Joseph had any problems with Mary's pregnancy during uh, Luke's gospel. Thoughtful hearers or readers would simply presume that as soon as Mary uh, had the visit from Gabriel, she would have told Joseph exactly what happened, and of course, he would have believed her. In the second century, an anti-Christian polemicist named Celsus argued that Mary's conception by the Holy Spirit was simply created as a cover-up by Christians to hide the fact that Mary may have been raped by a Roman soldier during the destruction of Sephoris. But... Borg and Crossan don't think that's what happened at all. Their explanation was nothing I had ever heard before. Are you ready? It goes like this. There's this threefold pattern in Matthew's visitation story to Joseph. Divorce, revelation, and remarriage, right? And since being engaged was the equivalent of being married, Joseph's decision to dismiss her quietly was basically that of getting divorced. He had made his mind up. Verse 20 and 21. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is the revelation point of the story, and also the gender and pregnancy reveals as well. But notice the way that the angel addresses Joseph. He calls him son of David. It's interesting to note this is the only time that someone other than Jesus is given this title in all of the Bible. Verse 24 and 25. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. So this is the remarriage part. And note... Matthew says that he took her as his wife, right? So divorce, revelation, remarriage. Why why am I uh, breaking the story down this way? Well, remember that Matthew is writing that Jesus is the new Moses. Well, Moses was born into a situation when the Egyptian ruler Pharaoh was trying to exterminate the Jewish community, first by slave labor and then by killing all of the newborn Jewish males. Well, Borgenkrossen mentioned that The Jewish tradition said that once Pharaoh gave this mandate, many Jewish couples chose to get divorced 
rather than to bring children into such a hostile environment in case their child might be a boy and then would be killed by Pharaoh. And so Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, did just that. Well, later there was a revelation to Miriam, the oldest child, in which God told her that her parents would give birth to the child that would rescue God's people. And so Amram and Jochebed got remarried. In fact, the medieval book of memoirs known as Sefer Har Zikranat writes this. When Amram heard heard his young daughter's prophecy, he took back his wife from whom he had separated in the consequence of Pharaoh's decree to destroy all the male line of the house of Jacob. After three years of separation, he went to her and she conceived. So Borg and Crossan believe that Matthew very deliberately shared this part of Jesus's conception story to connect to that uh, Midrashic version of Moses's conception story. And it was already prevalent among people in the first century. So the only reason that Matthew then brings up the issue of adultery is that he has to, in order to come back full circle, uh, have a reason for which Joseph would seek a divorce, then fit into the divorce, revelation, remarriage motif. One scholar that I read this week said that Matthew's visitation scene with Joseph is more about purpose than pedigree, right? That the Holy Spirit is at work in this very messy and difficult situation, working to bring about God's purposes for Jesus to be born as the Messiah. All of which is happening, of course, in the shadows of the Roman Empire, which will come to even more light when we look at Luke's visitation story. For that, we go to Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. So Matthew's visitation story takes place in Bethlehem. In fact, he never mentions that Mary and Joseph lived any place other than Bethlehem prior to Jesus' birth. Luke, on the other hand, sets this visitation story in the northern town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Both Gospels say that Mary and Joseph were engaged or betrothed. Professor John Carroll in his New Testament library commentary on Luke says this, Betrothal means that a formal consent to marriage has been given, and the man has gained legal rights over the young woman, presumably or typically uh, 12 to 13 years old. She continues to live in her family home under her father's control, however, until the consummation of the marriage and her change of residence to her husband's home. So Mary is most likely still at her parents' home, her childhood home, when this visitation from the angel Gabriel takes place. Now, both Matthew and Luke agree that Mary was a betrothed virgin virgin when Jesus was conceived, and they both cite the Holy Spirit as the source of the pregnancy. And most biblical scholars see that Matthew and Luke were written independently, meaning that they didn't have the other's gospel in hand when they were creating their own. So the details about this would have come from earlier traditions that were being passed down. In fact, it wasn't, it was uh, anywhere from 40 to 60 years before the gospels were written after Jesus' birth. So these stories and traditions were passed uh, from the faithful to their offspring. Well, uh, many Christian scholars see the virginal connection as a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, 
the verse says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and will bear a son, and you shall name him Emmanuel. Now notice that the New Revised Standard Version does not use the word virgin here, but young woman. That's because the original Hebrew word is literally young woman. That's how it's translated. However, the Greek version of the Old Testament, a book known as the Septuagint, translates that word virgin, which it can mean, but also means young woman. And it's interesting that only Christian interpreters seem to have read Isaiah 7.14 as a prediction of the Messiah. There's no other parallels in any other Jewish writings, biblical or otherwise, that mention that the Messiah should be born in this manner. And there's no other place in the New Testament either, other than the visitation stories from Matthew and Luke, that mention Jesus as being virginally conceived. So the question we should always ask then is, why was it important for these details to be included by Matthew and Luke in their visitation stories? Now, of course, the the, uh, idea, the concept of divine conception, that's not new to this story. We can find biblical examples, uh, both in the Jewish traditions, but also in Roman traditions. In the Jewish scriptures, divine conception stories occur when a predestined child is conceived and born to either barren or aged parents. Like Sarah is the great uh, matriarch that, that we all go back to. She's the archetypal story, of course. And in Genesis 17 and 18, we read about this late octogenarian who gives birth to Isaac, the child of the promise that was given to Abraham, who himself is no spring chicken either. And so God intervenes and helps this aged couple become parents at a, ver- at a, a very unlikely time in their lives. Praise God for that. Hannah's story is told in, first and second, uh, in the first two chapters of 1 Samuel. And though she was not old, the Bible says she was barren until God opened her womb and she and her husband were able to conceive. And the prophet Samuel was born, who would be extremely influential in the early years of the kingdom of Israel. In fact, he uh, was David's pastor. Elizabeth's story is told in Luke chapter 1. She was Mary's cousin and much, much older. She and her husband, Zechariah, had been unable to have children. But the book of Luke begins with this pregnancy, resulting in the birth of John the Baptist, the one who would come and prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Many Christian scholars see John's birth to Elizabeth and Zechariah as the culmination of the Old Testament leading up to the coming of the Messiah and that Jesus' birth is the start of the New Testament born to the Virginal Mary. Well, in the Greco-Roman culture and tradition, a predestined child was conceived by the gods having relations with humans. Perseus, Ion, Uh, Aesculapius and Romulus, they're all examples of these divine human interactions. But the one we really want to focus on this morning is none other than Octavian or Caesar Augustus. His name has come up before in the series and it will come up again. Now, the Roman legend around Octavian's birth story is as follows. His mother, Atia, went to a midnight worship service in the temple of the sun god Apollo. And at some point in the worship service, Everyone in the congregation fell asleep. Evidently, sleeping in church is an ancient and proud tradition. Anyway, when Atia woke up, she had this mark on her body that looked like a serpent, and she was never able to remove that mark. Well, they said that the god Apollos came to her in the form of a serpent while she was asleep in the temple, and nine months later, she gave birth 
to Octavian. Once he became Caesar Augustus, the first Roman Empire, the legend was revealed that he indeed was the son of God, the god Apollo. So in the ancient world, no one had a problem with divine conceptions, but they usually involved some sort of human involvement in the procreation process in order to become pregnant. That was not the case with Mary and the Holy Spirit, according to Matthew and Luke, which of course would have set Jesus apart from any other person who had come before him, but most notably over and against Caesar Augustus. As Borg and Crossan state, the proper question is not about the biology of his mother, but the destiny of this child. What is that destiny? And once you know it, are you willing to commit your life to it? To Caesar the Augustus, for example, or to Jesus the Christ? Verses 30 to 33. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Biblical scholar Richard Vinson comments that there are no biblical examples of young, unmarried women who get the happy news that they will have a baby through God's direct intervention until we get to Mary. Having been betrothed to Joseph, Mary knew that once she was married, she would be gaining the honor uh, of Joseph's lineage through the great ancestor David. But now she's told through Gabriel that an even greater honor will be bestowed upon her because of her son, who will be the son of the Most High. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. So Mary asked a basic biological question, right? Knowing that she and Joseph were not yet sexually active, would the child be conceived after their wedding? Was his adoption by Joseph going to bring him into the line of David? Gabriel says, no, no, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, why would Gabriel need to make that particular distinction? Surely all Jews would know there is just one God. Whom else would Gabriel be referring to? Well, it would be an important distinction if the rest of society saw someone else as a god as well, namely Caesar Augustus. So by Gabriel specifically mentioning the most high god, he's indirectly exalting him over and above the emperor Augustus. It's his theme that we're going to see over and over again, both in Matthew and Luke's Christmas stories. I love how Richard Vinson sets the scene. He says, a young girl from no place special has been chosen by God to do a very important task, and everything hinges upon whether or not she will accept it. Verse 38, then Mary said, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. So at a very young age, 12, 13 maybe 14, Mary has the grace to welcome this wonderfully troubling and life-changing news into her own life. And she says, let it be with me according to your word, with wisdom beyond her years. Her trust and obedience to what God is doing in her life becomes a wonderful model of faith for all of us, even 2,000 years later. I love how Meister Eckhart, the medieval German theologian, puts it, He writes, 
What good is it to me that Mary gave birth to the Son of God 1,400 years ago, and I do not also give birth to the Son of God in my time and in my culture? We are all meant to be mothers of God. God is always needing to be born. And so are we, 2,000 years after Mary, willing to let God use us to have Jesus reflected in our lives? Author Kathleen Norris, in her wonderful book, Amazing Grace, The Vocabulary of Faith, writes this. When a time or place seems touched by God, it is an overshadowing, a sudden eclipsing of my priorities and plans. But even in terrible circumstances and calamities and matters of life and death, if I sense that I am in the shadow of God, there I find light. So much light that my vision improves dramatically, and I know that holiness is near. That, my friends, is what Mary experienced in the craziness of the angel's visitation and announcement. She was willing to place herself solely and squarely in God's plans. Really, it's the opportunity that each of us has today as well. That even we can be mothers of God in the spirit that Meister Eckhart mentioned. That our lives can be used by God in ways that we may have never imagined. Being agents of God, surprising and transforming power through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It may not be sexy like a skydiving gender reveal or an alligator watermelon crunch, but if we can reveal Jesus in our lives to others. There's no telling how that might change our families, our communities, and the world. Let it be with each of us according to God's word. And all God's people said, amen.